Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. I'd like to say a special thank you to Brady for giving me this opportunity. We want to talk this morning about God's will. And just to clarify something that was brought up last week, we're not talking about like a will of what you get when a family member dies. Just wanted to clear that up. (laughs) Because God, of course, will never die, but... We are heirs. The Bible says we're heirs with Jesus and joint, or heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Uh, so we do look forward to an inheritance. But that's completely off the subject. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. We're going to look at the last part of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. And as we look into God's word this morning, we can say with with David in the Psalms, show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. So what I hope to answer this morning is how can we know God's will? Can we know God's will? Yes. And how can we know God's will? Let's read uh, Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his plans beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore is a connecting word. So he talks about God's glory. And because God is glorious and all things are from him and through him and for him. And he deserves glory forever. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are truly glorious. We thank you that all things are from you and through you and for you. I pray that you'd help us to live for your glory and that uh, the purpose of our life would be to glorify you. Use me now this morning as I speak. I pray that your word would touch hearts and you promised that it would, that it would not return void. So I pray that uh, as we look at your word this morning, you would illumine our hearts and Teach us how we can know your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about some, what we mean by God's will. Um, when people talk about, I want to know God's will, uh, what are they thinking about? There's different, people think of God's will kind of in different ways. Uh, some people have the idea that if I do God's will, I will be miserable, like Whatever I don't want to do, God, that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to be 
a missionary in the jungle where it's 140 degrees and I'm going to get eaten by ants. Okay. Maybe he does, but obviously, that's, if he does, if that's his will for you, then he will give you grace to sustain that. But God's not a, like a bully up there with a big plan to see, wow, what, is, what do you hate? I'm going to make you do that. Okay, so that's not a good concept of God's will. And the opposite spectrum to that is, um, or at the opposite end of the spectrum, is that if I'm in God's will, I will never have any problems. Everything will be perfect, and uh, I'll be rich. I'll always find the best parking spots. Um, it won't snow on, on my driveway. <clears throat> so that's, neither one of those are right. We want to get those out of the out of the way. I used to kind of think of God's will like a dartboard. God's will was the bullseye. So that was was the perfect will of God. And then around it was like close to God's will. And so you get like two or three shots, right? You get three darts and you hope you hit the bullseye. That's kind of the way I looked at life and God's will. Like if I, I got these three darts and if I miss, then I'm done for the rest of my life. Or some people, I've heard people talk of God's will kind of like a maze. There's only, you're trying to get to the exit. There's only one exit. There's only one right place to go. But, you know, you get lost in the maze and it's full of dead ends. And uh, it's, it's just trouble. None of those are really accurate. Those aren't good um, concepts of what God's will is. Those all kind of imply that God is like sneaky I got, I got a will, but you got to find it. So you're walking around the room, and he's going, you're getting warmer. You're getting colder. Okay, God's not sneaky. If he has a will for us, he wants us to know it. So he will reveal it to us. Or they might even imply that just God's just mean. <laughs> They'll never find it. Okay, God's not like that. That's not his character, and I think you know that. Um. One, one author of a book on God's will said this, uh, or he subtitled his book, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, or Riding in the Sky. So hopefully we can come to that conclusion today, how to find those things, how to find God's will without those things. All right, so back to, back to our text in Romans. Romans 11 ends talking about God's glory, and then it connects it to uh, some things God wants us to do. Because of God's glory, he says, Therefore, I urge you, and there's three main points, three main things that Paul urges us to do. The first is, in verse 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Paul says you should present your body, I urge you, I encourage you strongly, I beg you, present your body as a living sacrifice. It's a picture of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals, right? That that was their form of worship, sacrificing animals. And the priest would take an animal, the animal would be alive, the priest would kill it and put it on the altar and they would burn it. So Paul is using that idea of the altar and the sacrifice, but he says, I don't want you to present your body as a, you know, a, a dead sacrifice. I want it to be a living sacrifice. And he says, that is your act of worship. 
So the idea of presenting your body as a living sacrifice, it's total commitment. Okay, it's like the difference between the, if you're having a breakfast of bacon and eggs, the difference between the chicken who gives the eggs and the pig who has to be totally committed. All right, so <laughs> Paul is asking us to be totally committed. Again, we're not going to kill ourselves. It's not that kind of sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. So our bodies, if you're a Christian, if you're redeemed, if you've been saved, if you've been bought by the blood of Christ, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. Therefore, we should honor God with our bodies. It's the same idea... This presenting your body as a living sacrifice is the same idea of what Jesus said when he said, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he has to take up his cross daily and follow me. And the idea there is that you're giving your life. If you're carrying your cross in Jesus' day, carrying your cross, uh, the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry to them. It was an instrument of death. So if you were carrying a cross, you were going to your death. That's the idea. You're completely giving up your body to God. Uh, our body is the Lord's, so we ought to be holy. And then he gives three reasons why we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And again, in Romans 12.1. Uh, because of the mercies of God, we should present our bodies to God because of his mercy. Has God been merciful to you? It says in Lamentations that it is, it's because of his mercies that we're not consumed. We would be dead if it wasn't for God's mercy. His mercies are new every morning. So, because of God's mercies, think of the great things he's done for you. He sent your son to die for you, to take your penalty for sin because of his mercy. Mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. We deserve to be punished for our sins, but because of God's mercy, we can escape that punishment because Jesus took it for us. So the motivation is out of gratitude. Present your body not out of fear or drudgery or duty, but out of gratitude. Present your body as a living sacrifice. And then he also says that it's pleasing to God. Uh, the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be uh, without blemish. That means if you're going to sacrifice a lamb, you couldn't sacrifice a three-legged lamb. If, somebody, if a lamb got, a uh, wolf got a hold of it, and maybe it's almost dead or it, it survived, but only three legs, you can't sacrifice something like that. You had to have a pleasing sacrifice, one without blemish. And that's the way our, our sacrifice should be to God. We should give him our best, not, not, a, not a blemished sacrifice. And then he says it's your spiritual act of worship. And the act of worship, again, he's, revert, he's referring back to the Old Testament. The picture of their act of worship was sacrificing an animal. Our act of worship is giving our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it, some versions say 
It's your reasonable act of service or your reasonable uh, service. Okay, reasonable. Some of them have the word reasonable in there. And the word reasonable, the reason some versions translate that spiritual is because it's reasonable. It's not uh, something you do forced. It's reasonable. It's rational. You do it with your spirit, not just with your body. So it connects the body and the spirit. Then the second thing, he urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice and don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. The word conformed means, uh, the J.B. Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So the word conformed means like formed into, being squeezed into the world's mold. And it's, it's an outward expression that, that doesn't match your inner truth. So if you're a Christian, but you're acting like the world, if you let them squeeze you into your mold, then you're not living according to who you truly are. Uh, it has the idea of a disguise. Don't wear the world's disguise. But then he goes on to say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the word transformed has the idea of a complete change. The, word, the Greek word that's used here for transform is the same word that's used of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus was there with three of his disciples, and he changed. They could see his glory. He kind of unveiled his glory, came from the inside out, and he was changed, and he was shown really bright. Okay, that's the idea. Don't be fit into the world's mold, which is an outward thing, but be transformed on the inside to what God really wants you to be. And how are we transformed? By the renewing of our minds. Uh, now, why do our minds need to be renewed? Is there anything wrong with our minds? Some people have the idea, a lot of people actually have the idea, that the only thing wrong with our mind is lack of information. So, if you think the only thing wrong with our minds is lack of information, then um, your solution to any problem is education. Okay, we can solve all problems by education. We can solve poverty by better education. We can solve crime by better education. We can solve spiritual problems by better education. But Paul has a different view of that. In Ephesians 4.23, he uses a phrase that's kind of unusual. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Why does he say spirit of your mind, not just your mind? Well, I think that what it means is that our mind is not our mind, and sometimes we confuse mind and brain. I'm not talking about the physical organ brain, but our mind is more than just a computer. All right, that's why you can give two people the exact same facts and they will come to completely different conclusions. Because it's not a computer um, that just takes the facts and spits out the correct answer. Our mind has a spirit uh, or, or a way of thinking. It has a mindset, we might call it. It doesn't just have a view, it has a viewpoint. 
It doesn't just see things, it sees things from a certain perspective. Our minds are fallen, they're sinful. Uh, they don't just lack information, they have, they're a fallen, sinful mind. They don't glorify God naturally. Okay? Romans 1.21 says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. So, our mind is fallen like all the rest of us. Um, Paul said this in Ephesians 4. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So he connects our minds and our hearts. Uh, all of us also lived, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's what our minds are naturally like. They're not by nature bent on seeing uh, God as the most important, most worthy being in the universe. By nature, our minds see by nature, my mind sees me as the most important, worthy creature in the universe. Okay, and yours does too. And if you don't agree me, if you don't think that's right, you don't agree with me. Uh, think of how little effort you actually exert to know God, and how difficult it is to make your mind focus on knowing Him better. And ask yourself: Do you consider God's glory first of all, or do you consider your comfort? and your desires first of all. I think that helps us know what the problem with our minds are. They're not God-worshipping by nature. They're self-worshipping by nature. That's why we need to have our minds renewed. So how can our minds be renewed? Um, our minds can only be renewed by the Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter, two, tw chapter 12 here, uh, verse 2, it says, be transformed by the renewing or the renewal of your mind. That word renewal is only used here in Romans chapter 2 and one other place in the Bible, which is Titus 3.5. And Titus 3 says, At one time we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived, enslaved by the passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of God appeared, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal, that's that same word as in Romans chapter 12 too, renewal by the Holy Spirit. So all our renewal comes from the Holy Spirit. And how does the Holy Spirit renew our minds? If you look at 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it explains it. It says, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, All we, uh, it's, I'm sorry, and we all who with unveiled faces behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there's that word transformed again. We're being transformed how or when? As we 
behold the Lord's glory, we're being transformed with ever-increasing glory, or from one level of glory to the next. So as we behold the glory of Jesus, the Holy Spirit renews our mind and transforms us from one level of glory to another. And someday, uh, when we're in heaven and we see Jesus face to face, we'll be completely transformed to reflect his glory. So we're transformed as the Spirit reveals the glory of Jesus by exposing our minds to Christ-exalting truth. And what does he use, what does the Holy Spirit use to expose our minds to Christ-exalting truth? Where can we find Christ-exalting truth? Oh, it's in the Bible. I think we all know that. Um, So he uses God's word to transform our minds. And this transformation isn't instantaneous. Um, It's not something you can do while you're sleeping. You put the Bible under your pillow and it transforms your mind. No, it's a lifelong process. We're being transformed from one level of glory to another, to another, to another, and it's a lifelong process. But in Romans 12-2, Paul says, be transformed. That's a command. Be transformed. So it's something we have to work at. And again, it's a continuous process. It doesn't happen overnight or in one day. It's something we'll have to work on our whole lives. Uh, So it comes by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So that means we have to read the Bible, right? We have to know what it says. We should memorize it. We should meditate on it. We should listen to um, teaching, good, wholesome, good teaching of the Bible. We should read good Christian books. And don't limit your reading to the last books that were written in the last five years. Okay, as you grow, I hope that you will expand your reading to read some older authors, uh, maybe even back to the church fathers. And then we need to meditate on the work of Christ and what he's done for us. So it's something we have to work on. All right, then verse 2 says, then... If you do this, if you present your body a living sacrifice and you have your mind transformed by the renewing, or you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, then the result will be you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as we do those things, we are able to determine what God's will is. Here are some things that are plainly revealed as God's will. All right, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's will is for you to be saved. Uh, Luke 19 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God our Savior wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if you want to know God's will, you have to start here. You have to be saved. That means you've come to a point in your life where you know that you're a sinner 
and that you deserve God's wrath and that there's no way you can earn your way to heaven. You cannot be good enough to get to heaven. And you accept Christ's work on the cross in your place and put your faith in him as your savior. That's the first thing. That's God's will for you. If you haven't done that, then you can't know his will for anything else. You can't know his will for where you're supposed to work, who you're supposed to marry, uh, where you're supposed to go to college, or where you're supposed to go to church, or anything, until you're following what you know God's will is that you be saved. Secondly, his will for us who are saved is that we be sanctified. Sanctified means being pure, living a holy life. So we're saved, that puts us in right standing with God. We should be sanctified, which means that our day-to-day relationship with God is right. We're living right. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. For as we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So that's God's will that we be sanctified. Another thing that the Bible clearly says is God's will is in Ephesians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, it says, don't be foolish. Foolish is just a word for stupid. A more polite word, maybe. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. This is it. This is the Lord's will. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's God's will for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled, he contrasts it with being drunk. Don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're drunk with wine or any alcohol, you are not, uh, it's not that you can't do what you want to do, but it's you're doing what that alcohol doesn't encourage you to do, it leads you to do. You're acting under the influence of the alcohol. Hence, we have the driving under the influence charge. It influences you. It makes you do things that you wouldn't do when you're sober. Okay, but it doesn't mean you're completely, you have no control. I don't want to go home, but it's making me go home. Okay, but it does make you do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. And filled with the Holy Spirit is the same idea. You're influenced by the Holy Spirit. You do things that you wouldn't do if you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean you have no control. Okay, you still control your life, but the influence of the Holy Spirit leads you to do what God wants you to do. So that's God's will for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another thing that's God's will is for us to be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So it's God's will that we are joyful, praying continually, and thankful in all circumstances. Now let me just say that joy is not the same thing as happiness. It's God's will for you to be joyful 
Not necessarily God's will for you to be happy. So when, uh, when, someone, when something bad happens to you, if there's a tragedy in your family, uh, the Bible doesn't say you have to be happy. Okay? A, the perfect example is Jesus. Was Jesus happy in the Garden of Gethsemane? No, not at all. He was, uh, he was under a lot of stress. He was sweating drops of blood. He wasn't happy, but he was joyful. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So happiness is based on outward circumstances. Okay? If the, I guess if the Seahawks win today, then Brady will be happy. Uh, but that has nothing to do with joy. Joy, he can have joy even when they lose. Or if they lose, whatever. I don't really care. I have no favorites in the Super Bowl today. But um, joy is based on knowing that God is working in your life. So that whatever happens, I know that God will make all things work together for good because I love Jesus and I'm called according to his purpose. That doesn't say everything is good. It says God makes everything work together for good. And that good in the next verse is to make us conform to the image of his son. All right, and that brings me to the fifth thing that is God's will, suffering. 1 Peter 4.19 says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. We don't have to be happy about that, but we should be joyful about it. And the, some reasons, this is not exhaustive, and I'm going through this really quick, but some reasons God might allow us to suffer is because uh, it, it makes us more holy. Romans 5, 1 through 8 says that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. So it builds our hope. It, it refines us. It takes away the dross. It deepens our intimacy with Christ. Have you ever heard someone say, I grew more in my spiritual life in that period of time where I didn't have any problems? No, I, I, I'm pretty sure no one in here has ever heard that. But I have heard people say, during that time where I was going through deep struggles and bad things were happening, I learned to trust the Lord and I grew. So suffering helps us to grow and increases our intimacy with God. And 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 tells us that the light sufferings we're going through now are working for us an eternal weight of glory. So the sufferings we go through now are going to add to the glory we have in eternity. Okay, well, if you were hoping I would tell you about, like, uh, the everyday things, like where you should work or... You know, if you're not married, who you should marry. But I know I've completely ignored all that, right? But I'm going to answer that for you now. Um, if you're doing those three things, if, you're, if you've presented your body a living sacrifice and your uh, mind is being transformed from day to day by the Holy Spirit, then you can do whatever you want to do, and that's God's will. Now, let me qualify that. If you're living for God's glory, if that's your uh, main thing, then 
God will guide you. Psalm 37, 23 and 24. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So, you know the dartboard thing? If you throw it and you miss, God can move it over for you. Or he can give you another dart and say, throw it a different direction. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It's not for a man to direct his steps. God will direct your steps. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the key. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just go out and expect God to do this, but trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will guide you. Uh, Psalms 1 talks about it says, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. It says, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and whatever he does will prosper. So if you're living for the Lord, if you're trying to do those things, saved, if you're saved, sanctified, spirit-filled, thankful, and if you're suffering for the Lord, when it's his will, if you're doing those things, not perfectly, because none of us do those things perfectly, but if you're trying to do your best to do those every day as a pattern of your life for God's glory, then he's going to direct your path. Then when you come down to those decisions that are in the Bible, search the scriptures. You're not going to find a verse that says, thou shalt take the job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. But almost any job can be done to the glory of God. Some jobs can't, right? So if you're thinking about becoming a photographer or a model for an adult magazine, that's, it doesn't take you much time searching the scriptures to find out that's not right. So if there's nothing about the job that keeps you from glorifying the Lord while you're doing the job and you want to do it, then do it. So search the scriptures Look for principles. Get wise counsel. This doesn't mean uh, asking Joe at the barber shop or what's her name at the hairdressing place. Okay, wise counsel from people, godly people who know the scriptures. Um, because we all have blind spots, right? And people who are wise Christians can help us see those and avoid them. And then do what you think God is leading you to do for his glory. And if that's not God, what God wants you to do, he will change your course. He will direct your steps. It's like a sailboat. If the sailboat is anchored in place, you can't guide it where you want it to go. But once it gets moving, then the, the uh, captain or pilot or whoever can move it the direction he wants it to go. So that's the way God works in our lives. If we're following the scripture and listening to wise counsel and praying for his guidance, then just do something and he will guide you where he wants you to go. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us your word and that as we uh, cherish it and listen to it and read it and meditate on it, that you will guide our lives 
and take us where you want us to go and that every step along the way we should be uh, giving ourselves wholly to you and asking for your guidance and seeking to glorify you in whatever we do. I pray that you would Help us to apply this word to our lives this week and not be forgetful hearers as we go out of here. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Roy, so much for sharing the word with us this morning. It's really incredible. Roy is the brother of Alice Renolette, who her husband, Gene, and, and her too, um, they were involved in the youth ministry at the Baptist Church for so many years. Gene is like a father figure to me. And when I met Roy at the school where our children go to, we made that connection. I just Isn't it amazing how God weaves people into your life years ago and today? And just how he, it's, it's amazing how that works. I don't know if you're amazed that I am. I think God's a great chess player and he just puts people right in the right place at the right time. So I pray that you'll be encouraged today as you go. Thank you, Roy, for sharing God's word and helping us to know that, for one, just that, that song. Did you guys enjoy the hymn, the To So Sweet the Trust in Jesus? Did anybody take you back to when you were younger? Like I was sitting next to my mom. She was singing that song. And, uh, but that is, that is truly, it's all wrapped up in just trusting Jesus and knowing God's will that way. If you come prepared this morning to, to give and to bless the work that's going on here at the Calling Community Church. We do that by uh, putting a, your offering in the basket as you're leaving today here at this door or up top. And please, if you have a prayer request or if you filled out one of those informational cards, place that in the basket as well, and that information will get to us so that we can be praying for you today. Thank you for coming out today. Thank you for uh, just blessing us with your presence. Bless these families with these precious children as they go, and as a church, we partner with them, right, to encourage them to be the man and the woman God has called them to be. So bless you, and have a great day.